Okay, well, uh, good evening. It's, uh, it's my very good pleasure this evening to introduce Professor Martin Cave as our, our speaker. Um, uh, Professor Cave has, uh, for the last year, been the BP Centennial Visiting Professor in the Department of Law at the LSE. Uh, he began his academic career at Brunel and has since held chairs in uh, Warwick, Brunel, and obviously the LSE. It's um, probably easier to list the governments around the world uh, that Professor Cave has not worked for, not advised, than those that he has. Um, if you want a full rendition, you can um, visit his own webpage. Uh, if I were to list them all this evening, I'd probably eat into too much of his speaking time. Um, he's advised the um, Vivian Redding, the European Commissioner, uh, Ofcom, um, conducted reviews for the BBC. He's advised the governments of uh, the UK, Canada, Australia on spectrum policy, and many other jurisdictions around the world. And this evening he's here to talk to us about uh, to the question of what should we do about Google, which is clearly uh, a very pressing issue in a number of different jurisdictions uh, at the present time. Um, Martin has agreed to speak for around about 40-45 minutes um, and what I would ask is that you hold back any questions that you have until the end of his, his talk and then we can um, spend a good bit of time um, having him address the concerns that you raise. So without uh, very much more ado, I'd like to hand over to Professor Martin Cave. Well, thank you. Um, Andrew's very tactfully glossed over the question of whether any of those governments took my advice. Um, to which the answer is, not always. Uh, and on some occasions it was a change of government and they did exactly the opposite. But, but um, my, my main focus in life has been looking at the sort of the, the nuts and bolts of network industries. Um, the, uh, the wires, the tracks, uh, the pipes, latterly, including both water and sewage pipes, believe it or not. Um, but what I'm going to talk about today is, is a slightly different thing, which um, is what's known in the telecoms business as over-the-top services, the things that, that go over the, um, the wires, things like the BBC, Netflix, Google, and which tend to present rather different problems. If, you, if you're thinking about pipes and wires and tracks, then there's a well-established procedure. You choose a bunch of people to regulate them, and they set prices, and quarrel with the operators and it just goes on and on and on. But with this over-the-top stuff, um, it's different. There's not, not normally a great deal of capital involved. It's, it's innovative. It's, it's ingenious. It tends to be competition for the market. You know, the person who gets in first with Facebook or whatever it is gets a big advantage. And you're often faced with the problem of what you should do in those circumstances. If somebody's built up a particularly strong position, um, through uh, normally his or her own efforts and ingenuity, how should the competition authorities in particular deal with this if there appears to be a risk of um, customer detriments, consumer detriments, as a result of the accumulation of market power? So Google is a, is a rather interesting case um, in this, uh, in this uh, line. Um, and I'm, I'm just going to take you through some of the issues which, which arise in, in dealing with problems of this kind, and dealing with Google in particular. So just to give you the background, um, Google's 13 years old. Um, I don't know uh, if there's anybody in this room who doesn't use Google. Is there anybody in this room who doesn't use Google? 
Yeah, it's an interesting phenomenon. But, but you will all have noticed about 10 days ago that they had a birthday cake up with 13 candles on it to, um, to indicate that um, it was, they were 13, which is pretty staggering when you think that they now have a, um, an enterprise value of $175 billion. Um, what it does, essentially, um, and what it did initially, at least, was to, was to send a search algorithm to crawl over all the web pages in the world and index them. And then, of course, any of us who, who types in a, uh, a search term, like um, rose petals um, or anything else that comes to mind, nothing does to my mind at the moment that I could possibly convey to you, um, then in those circumstances, it, it just gives you the, um, it gives you the, the, the best references. So it's, it's based upon this capacity instantaneously, or almost instantaneously, to give you the best sources, the best bits of the web, which deal with your particular query. Okay? So that was step number one. Step number two is finding a way of making money out of doing that. Because obviously search is free. You don't have to pay for it. How do you monetize it? And they did this very brilliantly by assigning a bit of the page for advertising and then creating a very clever kind of auctioning system so that people who wanted to appear in the paid search component of the page could bid competitively against one another for the right to do so. And they didn't just simply award the top slots to the highest bidders. They awarded them on the basis of partly the bid and partly the quality of the information that they provided on their site. So it was a very clever kind of mixed auction. That's how they started then. First a search, then a paid search. And then the next step was to, was to look at other bits and pieces associated with that, which they could um, get into as well. Um, things like ad serving, which is locating the appropriate um, ads on the page at the right time, which is something that all search engines and many other consumers want. Then they went into downstream activities, such as rather more specialized search engines and things of that kind. Uh, then they went into selling houses, selling TV advertising, and a whole bunch of other things. So that was entirely search-based things. But then simultaneously, they, they were doing a whole bunch of other things. They developed Gmail, an incredibly popular um, email system, as you know. Android, which is a mobile operating system, which is really going great guns um, against the likes of Nokia and Samsung. Uh, Microsoft, Google Books, which I'll talk about a bit, social networks, most recently Google+, which they, they haven't really made much progress with because Facebook got in first. And now they've just made a huge acquisition in the field of mobile technology by buying Motorola Mobility. So apart from Motorola, Google is almost entirely bits. It's almost, it has nothing to do with atoms, with physical things. It's almost entirely to do, with, to do with information. It's one of the world's most digital firms. I mean, Motorola represents a bit of a, a departure because um, Motorola, as you may know, originated in the 1920s manufacturing car radios. And the car radio, in fact, occupied all the, that part of the car at that time. Now they've managed to miniaturize it. Quite a lot of bits, quite a lot of atoms in that. Um, but that's, that's an exception. And the, the, the general indication seems to be that um, the reason they bought Motorola was not because of its, its mobile phones, because of its patents, so they can go into bat with all their other um, competitors in that field. Now, I'm going to 
just say something a little bit more generally about what I call Google exceptionalism, because it really is an astonishingly different firm. Its achievements are, 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 are amazing. Um, the word Google is a, is a misspelling of the mathematical unit Google, which is 10 to the power of 100. In other words, quite a big number. Just to give you some kind of indication of, of the scale of that, um, in 2015 it's estimated that the, the web will carry in that complete year a zettabyte. And a zettabyte is 10 to the 21 bytes. So the Google thing is, so to speak, um, logarithmically five times greater than the zettabyte. So clearly Google, when they started, had a, had a sense of um, the way in which the web and the amount of information available on it would increase. The, the, the company started with two graduate students in the computer science department at Stanford, Larry Page and Sergey Brin. Um, Page was born in Michigan and his father was a computer science professor. Sergey Brin came over with his family from Soviet Russia um, in the, the 1980s. They were working together um, and they, they developed the ideas which lie behind the algorithm, the so-called PageRank algorithm together. Apparently Page had a um, had an obsessional fear that he might lose all his inventions by disclosing them. So he was very secretive. He, he had in mind the fate that befell the great inventor Tesla, whose, all of whose inventions were, um, were, were, were actually commercialized by somebody else. So, so they, they were faced to stand with the difficulty because they, they had this brilliant idea, page rank. They wanted to get a PhD, but they couldn't tell anybody what their idea was. So that was a problem which they overcame in traditional fashion by setting up a company and renting a garage. Okay, I've, I've often thought that the US advantages in, um, in high tech have been due as much to Detroit as to anywhere else because they all started in garages. If you look at British garages, they're, they're dreadful. You can't imagine anybody working in there day and night trying to develop an algorithm or something of that kind. But spacious American algorithms, uh, garages with, um, with heating and doors and so on, and, and, uh, and windows, are obviously a much better environment. So they, they started this in 1998. Now, I have this information from a wonderful book that's indicated here at the bottom by Ken Orletta, called Googled. Ken Orletta is a New Yorker writer who spent most of his time writing about network TV in the United States. So he switched to writing about um, the digital economy um, in the late 90s. And he... Um, he claims in the book that in 1998 he interviewed Bill Gates and he asked Bill Gates, the inventor of Microsoft, what are you really afraid of? And Bill Gates decide, said, I'm afraid of two guys in a garage inventing something that I've never dreamed of. Okay. Now, it was exactly at that moment that Page and Brin were in a garage inventing something that, um, uh, that Gates hadn't heard of. And they managed to um, incorporate their, their company in 1998, having, having left Stanford for the purposes of doing so in the famous garage. Now, Google's an interesting company in many other ways. Um, for one thing, the engineers are in charge. Their starting salaries are twice anybody else's. They get 20% of their time free to work on their own projects. The lawyers and the accountants, the marketing people, don't. So it's, it's hard to think of anything more different from the traditional British style, style of company where the engineers are sort of down there 
And we guys, you know, in this room, um, are, are the managers and the marketers and the lawyers are, are at the top. So that's a, that's a very distinctive feature of it. Another very distinctive feature of it is its, um, is its, um, its uh, catchphrase or its, or its claim to fame, the company motto, which is don't do evil. I, I find it very difficult to say do no evil, but in fact it's, it's don't do evil. This emerged in late 1999 when they were trying to think of what the, the company's objective should be. And somebody said, why don't we do this? And then the next day, the Google employee number seven, because they're all numbered, it's a bit like James Bond, went round and wrote in beautiful handwriting, don't do evil, and it became their sort of catchphrase. They were trying to distinguish themselves from other companies, particularly perhaps uh, Microsoft. But in fact, they were so successful that it was quite difficult to sustain other people's belief, if not their own belief, um, in, the, in the, um, the adherence to the don't do evil objective. This came to light particularly in 2004 when they had their, their initial public offering and they had to publish data about the company and people suddenly started to realize what a money spinner it was because the, the, the monetization of the search through the paid ads, AdWords, was really sending truckloads of money into them. They had, they had more money than they could possibly deal with. And from 2004 dates, the, the, the feeling that among some people that, that Google had gone too far, they were too big and they were too important, and there was a risk they would run roughshod over everybody. There was a film public to the, published at the time called Google Zone. Google Zone being a, a, a combination of Google and Amazon, and they became known. They started to become known as the as the evil empire. So they've been sort of fighting this ever since. In the years since 2004, of course, the, the revenues have grown hugely. I mean, seriously hugely, into you know, 20, 30 billion dollars a year. Um, as I've said, um, the, the, the company valuation is now 175 billion. Um, and so this has permitted them the absolutely staggering diversification which I referred to. I mean, they have enough money, they have enough cash to do almost anything. And obviously, a combination of that and their engineering brilliance puts them in a very powerful, powerful position vis-a-vis um, any um, competitor. Now, there's another aspect of this which Orletta in his book discusses under the heading the third rail. This is the privacy question. I'm not going to talk about privacy, although I know some of my law department colleagues are very interested in this. And obviously, with all these data, there's an enormous amount that they can do to threaten people's privacy. And what I've put up here is is two quotes which, um, uh, which originate with Eric Schmidt, formerly the chief executive officer, now the chairman of Google. And they're pretty frightening. If you have something you don't want anybody to know, then maybe you shouldn't be doing it in the first place. Okay. Google policy is to get right up to the creepy line where people start worrying about privacy and not cross it. And Schmidt makes all sorts of remarks of this kind. It's a, uh, my own interpretation of it is that, that he has figured out that even though there are a few people in the world, like me for example, um, who are worried about privacy, then most people aren't. So you can actually do this without having terrible repercussions for you. So, so it's not really a third rail that's going to electrocute you. It's a third rail which you can largely jump over and, and move around when you need to. Now, why do we need to talk about Google? 
Um, I think partly to celebrate it, because I, I don't want to give the impression uh, in what the rest of I'm going to say that, that, that Google um, has been anything other on balance than a huge force for good and progress um, in its 30 years of existence. But clearly, it's got to the stage now, as I shall try to demonstrate, where, where charges are laid by, mostly by competitors against Google, which, which may require some kind of investigation. So one of the things I'm going to talk to you about is Google's experience with competition law to date. Fairly recent, um, only it's become slightly hectic. And in particular, the question has arisen, is Google's position of economic strength in search so large that its competitors need some kind of help to be able to, provide, to, to survive? Do we need some kind of intervention in terms of, particularly of a competition law intervention, um, in order to, um, in order to, in some sense, control the, the power which Google has. And in terms of market share, as I'll show you in a moment, it's, it's pretty spectacular. Another very key question is, given that Google has a very strong position in search, to what degree is it legitimate for it to use that position for the benefit of its affiliated businesses? For example, um, it said and I'm going to use that phrase quite often because um, we haven't had the competition investigations, haven't had their results published. It's said that one of the things that Google does is to prevent um, its competitors from properly indexing YouTube, which is a, a Google company. Okay. So that obviously the effect of that is to reduce the desirability um, of those other search engines. Is that a legitimate thing to do in the circumstances? And then underlying this is a much bigger question, um, which I'm not really going to be able to address. You'll be relieved to hear. It might take some considerable time, which is, should we take a different approach towards market power and dominance and the use of dominance in high-tech markets than in low-tech markets? In, in, in industries which are not going to change for 200 years, should we intervene in circumstances where if somebody held what might in fact turn out to be a relatively short-lived ascendancy in a high-tech sector, it wouldn't be appropriate to intervene. So that's a, that's a kind of major background question, but I'm going to focus upon Google here. Now, I'm going to talk about two things here. I'm, I'm going to talk very briefly about Google Books, and I'm going to spend most of the time talking about search and the ramifications of search. But, I'm beginning with Google Books because I think it, it illustrates to me some of the enormous strengths but also some of the weaknesses of Google. I mean, it really was an extraordinary venture. Beginning in 2004, they conceived the plan of scanning every single book that had ever been published that was available in any library in the world. I mean, just think of that. I mean, it takes me about half a day to scan a page. But just think of the task that's involved. However, however neglected, you know, however few people, apart from the author's mother, has ever actually held it, that is going to be scanned. Okay? They, they initially conceived the objective as indexing so they could respond to, to that the contents of the books could be responses to search queries. Then they conceived the idea of actually selling the books. This would mean that you know, anybody who's connected to the web could order from Google a, a copy, an electronic copy, of any book in the world, provided there weren't copyright problems. And it's here that they ran into difficulties, because um, obviously if books were out of copyright, no problem. 
if books were in copyright and you know who held the copyright, no problem, you have to ask them. But what about so-called orphan books, which were in copyright but nobody knew who the author or the publisher was? What should you do about that? And this represents a very large proportion of books in, in libraries. And so what they did was they, um, they indicated they were planning to press ahead with this policy of scanning them. Then there was a class action by publishers and, and authors. Google then settled the class action by offering to pay $125 million to the Book Publishers Association and the authors group, I can't remember the name of it. Um, of that $125 million, a minor detail, a third would actually go to the lawyers who were involved in the negotiating the transaction. Okay. But then it was appealed. So what happened next? There were objections to the deal. It created a monopoly because nobody else would be able to make these books available once Google had, um, had um, uh, published them. Prices were too high. It was said that the class action failed to take account of certain groups, so certain groups weren't, weren't being treated properly in this. This was an argument made by a very brilliant American lawyer called Pamela Samuelson, who said that academic authors basically didn't want the money, they just desperately wanted somebody to read their books, and therefore they wanted it to be available free, or very low prices, and their interests would be neglected in the deal. And the French and the Germans in particular complained that non-US authors were disadvantaged. So. What happened? Well, it went to court. Judge Chin in New York delivered a judgment in February on the so-called amended settlement agreement, and he, he knocked it back. He said that it wasn't acceptable as it stood. And he, he identified a number of grounds, antitrust concerns. Um, he, he argued, incidentally, that the amended search agreement, settlement agreement would give Google control over the search market, which is something we're going to come on to in a moment. Um, you know, in, certainly in many countries it probably already has that. International law concerns, the interests of class members, obviously very group of authors, publishers, they weren't adequately represented. And then most fundamentally he said that, that what Google and the parties were trying to do through the amended settlement was basically to introduce a completely new copyright law. They were trying through this procedure to change the rules of copyright that had existed since heaven knows when. This was a, an argument made very strongly by the US Department of Justice. So he basically, he basically um, knocked it back and, and implicitly invited the, um, the parties to come up with a deal in which there wasn't an opting out. That's to say, your book couldn't be reproduced if you objected. There had to be an opting in. You had to agree, and that, of course, is consistent with ordinary copyright. Now, what does this story tell us? It tells us, I think, a couple of things. Firstly, that Google is a fantastically brilliant company, ambitious company. I mean, who would ever have dreamed up the idea of scanning every single book that had ever been published and making it available to anybody throughout the world if they weren't to pay? But that's the problem and the second point. They, in a sense, they just pushed it too far they tried to make a deal which was insufficiently generous to the parties and persisted in that. And so their, their desire to, to clean up, so to speak, a perfectly reasonable commercial objective, in some sense undercut the, the ambition of their objective. Now, back to search. As I've said, there are two types of, of search that we're interested in. There's organic search, 
which is the unpaid results. You type in whatever you type in, and then using the Google algorithm, it produces from the web what it considers to be the best web pages. And then there's paid search. Paid search is based upon this, this process of, of auctioning the top position on the right-hand side of the screen where the paid search is. They used a, um, a particular um, uh, second price auction technique known as a Vickery auction, which some of the economists in here may, may be aware of. It, it's led to um, a big debate in the economics profession, to which I belong um, in some degree. Uh, and the, the question they face is, you know, we know this thing works in practice, but does it work in theory? So we've been debating for years whether it works in theory, um, whilst um, obviously Google has been substantially enriched by its operation in practice. And then there are, there are another bunch of search engines which I'll talk about also, so-called vertical search engines. These are specialized search engines which um, deal with, say, electrical goods or finance or travel or things of that kind. They're a sort of subspecies of search engine, and for some reason they're called vertical search engines, and we'll come back to that in a moment. Okay, I'm now going to just take you through a few episodes of Google and the competition authorities culminating in a, a rather, rather interesting one which is going on at the moment and which unfortunately we can't predict the results of. Um, the first one was uh, the acquisition by Google of DoubleClick, which is a, a company which does ad serving, that's say placing ads. And this came before the European and the US um, competition authorities and basically they cleared it. They said this is a, a vertical merger, their rules on vertical mergers basically say that you only want to disapprove them or prohibit them if there's serious risk of foreclosure, that you, use, you will use the power you have where you're dominant to exercise control in the other layer where you're making the purchase. So this was fairly straightforward. There were various theories advanced as to how foreclosure should take place, but they weren't considered to be particularly convincing. So the, the acquisition was approved. Then the next one um, was uh, uh, a, um, uh, 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 an agreement between Microsoft and Yahoo which had a rather interesting history <laughs> because Google tried to combine with Yahoo which is the second or the third biggest search engine in 2008 but that deal was blocked in America by the Department of Justice then Microsoft acquired Yahoo's search business and that satisfied the thresholds at which the acquisition or the agreement has to be considered by the competition authorities in Europe. So they then had to sort of face up to a rationale for either prohibiting or alternatively accepting um, the, the, uh, the merger. And it was, in a sense, it's quite unusual um, for the competition authorities um, to be asked to consider a merger between the second and the third largest companies in any particular market. I mean, normally, the distribution of sizes is going to be such that that's, that's quite likely to be ruled out. Okay. But if you look at the market shares which the European Commission published, you'll see why, in this case, they weren't particularly worried about a merger between the second and the third largest. And that was because the largest is absolutely enormous. These are Google market shares. In the UK and Europe, 80 to 90 percent. In some other European countries, above 90 percent. I mean, these are these are humongous market shares. I mean, it's it's most unusual for um, competitive markets to exhibit this kind of asymmetry. In the United States, interestingly, 
um, the market shares of Google um, are rather less extraordinary. I haven't really quite got to the bottom of, that is, of why that is. And of course, there are countries like um, China, um, where other search engines have huge market shares. There are, there are some European countries, including the Czech Republic, I think, where possibly for linguistic reasons, a national company has a very large market share. So that was the, the, the uh, clarification, I think, of, of exactly how large Google had become and, and what large market shares it had and you know, by implication, the, the, the potential that it, that it might have had, uh, that it may have in certain circumstances, to exercise that market power inappropriately. The third one I want to talk about is something that's very recently been completed. It's, um, it's Google's acquisition of a travel software firm called ITA so Software. This wasn't considered by the European authorities because it didn't satisfy the thresholds for it to do so, but it was considered at length by the Department of Justice in the United States. And the fear was that if Google as a search engine acquired a software company which supplied other search engines, then it would be able to deny those other search engines access to the software and thereby advantage its own rival travel search engine. So there was a whole lot of humming and hawing about whether to allow this merger to go ahead. Um, and in the end, the Department of Justice agreed to do so subject to very strict behavioral rules. This is always a problem you get in competition policy. Um, either you say, no, you can't do the merger, and then that's sort sorted. But competition authorities generally don't much like doing that, so they, they try and identify sets of restrictions which would allow the merger to go ahead. And these are typically restrictions on the behavior of a firm in the marketplace. And this is, this is a bunch of restrictions which, which were applied to, um, in, in the case of ITA software. Really, really quite difficult and complex ones. That They had to license their software to Google's competitors in the search engine field. They couldn't say, okay, that's it. You know, go, and, go, go, um, go take a hike, find yourself some more software from Tuesday week. Okay. They had to establish internal firewall procedures to prevent information flowing from ITA's other customers towards Google, its owner. And perhaps most bizarrely, they extracted a commitment that the company should continue software R&D. For the next two years, it has to spend as much on software R&D as it has in the past two years. Of course, they can contrive that none of that R&D produces any reasonable results and do the real R&D back around the corner in Google House or something like that. So it just illustrates the difficulties that you get into when you're, you're trying to deal with, um, with, with difficulties of this kind um, through, through commitments. And obviously, um, that's relevant to the next things we're going to talk about. The fourth one is a case that's appeared before the French Competition Authority. And it's based upon a complaint um, I guess the, the, um, the, the product in question is, is not particularly morally creditable. It's, it's those um, sensors or data streams that you can get that tell you where there's a speed radar. So you can go huge speed up to it, and then you get a signal slow down, and then after 20 meters you speed up again. However, we may think it's a slightly reprehensible product, but I'm sure that uh, the purveyors of it are, are subject to appropriate protections under competition law. Um, and this is what was happening. Uh, the competition authority found that 
In the case of some people who wanted to advertise this product, Google let them. And these included the really big providers like TomTom, who make GPS systems and car guidance systems and so forth. But this particular small version, Navex, was excluded. And so the, the competition authority found that there was discrimination going on. And they accepted commitments from Google. They would eliminate um, the, um, the discrimination and make um, the service, the advertising service, which, which it provided transparent and objective. So I've, I've mentioned this one because it's a, something that may crop up later. Now, this is the big one, though, the abuse of dominance complaint in Europe. Um, it began in November 2010 when the Commission agreed to investigate a complaint that was made by three small search engines in different European countries. One in the UK, we'll hear about it more in a moment. And their beef was that they were subject to unfavorable treatment in their unpaid search results, or to put it um, rather, more, um, rather more colorfully, that Google was cooking the books, cooking the results of the, of the algorithm so that its competitors didn't appear at the top but appeared much further down. You have to remember that um, when lists of search results appear, 50% of people click on number one or number two, and 97% of people, or roughly 97% of people, click on the first 10. So if you aren't in the first 10, you're toast. So you can do somebody considerable harm by actually putting them down the list. Okay? Unfavorable treatment of paid search results, ditto, if you manage to construct an auction process which discriminates against competitors, then they aren't going to appear in the top 10 of the paid search results, and so nobody will click on them. Preferential treatment of Google's own services, and then slightly more complex thing that I, I, won't, I, won't, uh, I won't bother to go into. Now, the question then arises is sort of what's going, what's, what's the process here? Now, the fact that somebody's made a complaint doesn't mean that the person who's complained against is guilty. You know, that's, that's a fairly obvious point. And, and leads to say, I'm making no suggestions of that kind um, in the course of the next 10 minutes while I talk about this particular aspect. Uh, you know, I just don't know. There's no deadline for the inquiry. They can take as long as they like. I mean, I'm involved in a telecoms case which has gone on for three years without any kind of decision from the Commission about how to proceed. It's not particularly satisfactory but they aren't obliged to do it. The outcome may either be no action, you know, no problem, or it could be a statement of objections which might lead to a finding of abuse, in this case, and the imposition of a fine, subject to appeal, of course, or it might be commitments that are given by the party which, which say, in essence, we don't say we've done anything wrong, but in the future we're going to modify our behavior in the following ways. Okay? And because they've said, we, won't, we don't admit we've done anything wrong, then nobody can use that finding in private action against the party. Okay, that's, this is obviously um, the, the, the nightmare for, for Google is that it might get involved in a 10-year process of investigation by the competition authorities, European competition authorities, such as Microsoft did, which just went on and on and ended them up paying fines such as... Um, such as about a billion euros, I think. I can't quite work out what the total was. It was something of that order of magnitude. Now, incidentally, um, there is a clear difference between, between Google and Microsoft. I mean, Google always says, in terms of switching, competition is a click away. 
you know, you just click a different, a different icon and you get Bing. Or alternatively, if you're an advertiser, you take your paid advertising away from Google and put it onto, onto Bing. Now, that, that's obviously quite different in the case of Microsoft. As, as everybody knows, um, in the case of Microsoft, competition is an enormous number of clunks away, and it's going to take you a long time to actually get there and, uh, and learn the new procedure. So that's a, an important difference, but not necessarily a decisive one. Now, just to, to, to consider the problems that might arise in this particular search activity, it's a very important question, is, is what's the cost structure? And you can break down search into a whole range of different things. I mean, one very important cost, if you want to set up in the search engine business, is you've got to index trillions of web pages. You know, a lot of money, even if you get access to them. Then you have to get advertisers to come to you in circumstances where advertisers typically prefer advertising on the, largest, the larger available media. As you get more and more business, you have to provide quick access to servers. It means you have to build up enormous numbers of data centers. Data centers as big as three football pitches, requiring for their power you know, enormous capacity. You also, and this is very fundamental, as you acquire more customers, you learn more about the things that people are interested in, both individually through their search experience but, but generally about what, what people are interested on a Tuesday evening in October, what's likely to be something of importance to them. And that means that you can make your search results respond to that in a much more in instantaneous fashion. You can also satisfy uh, the requirements that people have for what's sometimes called a long tail of search terms, rather esoteric things, so not just dried flowers, but dried rose petals. And if I knew any variety of roses, I could then go on and say dried rose petals of this particular variety. So you provide a better service. And then there are also scale effects in the network that carry the traffic, although that's a sort of common telecoms problem. Now, I want to, um, I want just very quickly, since I haven't got much time remaining, just to consider two particular um, concepts which might be relevant um, if we wanted to discuss the possibilities, and only I stress the possibilities, um, for abuse of dominance. One approach is the essential facilities approach, and the other approach is the discrimination approach. So the question is whether there is a kind of virtuous circle operating with very large search engines, of which of course Google is the paramount example, which means that as they get more customers, they get more data, their research terms become more refined, the research results are better, so you get more customers, so other people like newspapers ask you to do their search for them, so they outsource their search to you, and so you create a kind of virtuous circle like that which makes it extraordinarily difficult for anybody actually to get into it. And the question is, does that in some sense represent the kind of essential facility, does that make the search engine a kind of essential facility which has been a feature of competition in all cases in a large number of instances. I'm going to go through these very quickly. Access to traditional facilities like a port, that's one example. Computerized airline reservation systems, where the competition authorities have said that 
If you run a very large computerized airline reservation facility, then in certain circumstances you had to make it available to your competitors, because otherwise they're going to go out of business. Intellectual property cases. There are a number of intellectual property cases which are listed here, culminating in Microsoft, where um, at, at various stages and through a, a process of the development of the law, people who've held intellectual property of particular kinds have been forced to make it available to their competitors. Um, I don't have time to go into this, but um, many people think this has gone too far. Commentators such as Sir John Vickers think that in the Microsoft case, for example, that the court went too far in demanding that Microsoft make certain information available to its competitors. Okay, but, but the problem that we face here is that if you did think that the search engine contained elements which were an essential facility, you know, what would you require access, what, what would you require um, to be made available by way of access to competitors? And it's very hard actually to find because it, it's pretty dumb to say, let's give them all the algorithm. Because that's the innovation, you know, that's the brilliant thing that Page invented in a dorm room in Stanford in 1998. And if you start making people give away that kind of stuff, then who's going to bother to try and do it in the future? So what is it that you, that you, you in a sense, mandate access to? And I think the, the, probably the, the, um, uh, the, 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 the best approach, although there are intermediate ones, such as a requirement that search terms be made, search terms data be made available to competitors, but I don't find that personally particularly appealing, although some people think there's justification for it. Maybe the thing that you really need to mandate is that competitors get a fair shake in the operation of the search procedures, both paid and unpaid. That competitors to Google in other markets aren't discriminated against in the course of doing so. Now, if that's true, then probably we don't need this essential facilities stuff. We can just simply go to um, whatever it is that prohibits uh, a dominant firm from engaging in discrimination um, against competitors, either in its own market or in, or in related markets. Okay, so, um, so this would go to the issue of, of cooking of the research results, of the, of the search results. Now, it's, it's, a, it's, it's something that, that, that it's clearly possible to do. Um, you can cook the organic unpaid search results just manually by saying if, if these firms come up, they can't appear in the top ten, they go down the rankings. You can cook the paid search results by giving your competitors low scores because remember, where you appear in the page rankings depends upon how much you pay and also your quality score. If you give somebody a low quality score, they're going to drop out of the top ten, and so they're going to be dead. So there are all sorts of ways in which you can do this. And I hasten to say I'm not suggesting that, that Google um, does so. Um, and generally, they deny it. And all the time, inevitably, they have to be fiddling around with their, with their algorithms. I mean, they aren't using the 1998 algorithm now. That would be mad. They're using something that develops all the time. Almost every day they make some changes to it. And in February 2011, for example, of this year, they made very big changes to it. 
And the problem is whenever they make changes to it, they alter the rankings and they're actually moving billions of dollars around the board from some firms to another, which means that some people are quietly happy and an awful lot of people are, are very noisily angry. So it's a, it's, it's a real difficulty here. Um, and as I've said, Google's approach generally is to say, no, you know, we don't do that. We just, we just take the results as they are. But there was one exception to this where a Google executive said in 2007, and I'll come back to the importance of this date very quickly in a moment, said in 2007, um, when we started out Google Maps and Google Finance, we put them at the top. Why did we put them at the top? Well, we'd done all the work we thought we were entitled to. It was a sort of slightly ill-considered remark, one might think, and it's contradicted by all sorts of other Google propositions, but just the same, it's, it's there. Now, I want now, just very quickly, to take you through an element of one of the complainants' case against Google. As I've said, the complaint was issued in, was, was given to the Commission in late 2010, and, um, um, and uh, I've, I've taken from a public source the following slides which, which make the complainant's case emphasize. I have no idea what the, counter, what the rebuttal is. I'm sure there is a rebuttal, but in the nature of things, that's not available at this stage in the proceedings. Okay. This is traffic to Google's product search. That's its vertical search engines that focus upon particular activities. Okay? And you can see that there was a big change in November 2007. That was the time when the product search was renamed, and that was the time when the executive whom I referred to earlier said, we put them first. Okay? I'm not even quite sure what's going to happen now. Okay? Now, look what happened to Google's competitors' traffic. It tanked after that had happened. Look what happened to Google's traffic. That's the green line. Now, you know, maybe the others were just lousy search engines and Google came along and creamed them because they had a much better product. Okay? But there is another facet to this, which I'll go through very quickly, because I can see Andrew's uh, got his eye on the time. This particular complainant um, collected data on the rankings in Google of a whole bunch of different price comparison sites, because that's what these are, for 273 separate search terms. Okay? So the ranking of Kelku, as you can see, sometimes it's great, it's first, sometimes it's 35th or 40th, fluctuates an awful lot. The ranking of Kelku and Shopping.com, that's the um, light green and dark green squares. You can see, again, a huge degree of variation, but no dominance of one over the other. Okay? Now, you had need terrific eyesight to see this one, but this is the rankings of seven such engines. And if you had a magnifying glass, you would see that, again, they're all over the place, and there's no tendency for one to dominate. Okay, this is, this is the company's piece de resistance, which I'm sure you'll be able to interpret as soon as you see it. Okay? The red is Google. Pardon? Always 
Yes, yes, well, that's, that's, that's quite possible. That's, that's right. Thank you for that interjection. I mean, I'm, I'm not, this, this, isn't, this isn't kind of the smoking gun, um, but it's, it's still quite interesting. Now, I'm going to finish off very quickly because it sounds as if you're getting restless and you want to talk about uh, what I've been saying. Um, sorry, I've just got to go back. Various reasons I have to do this. Okay, so, so where, does, where does this take us? Well, I think that if discrimination has taken place, and I'm not saying it has, if it has taken place, then it does put Google in quite a difficult position because it does appear to have substantial dominance. And if it's using that dominance in a related market, okay, and then there'd be all sorts of problems about trying to devise commitments which would overcome that if the conclusion which the competition authorities came to was not that there was no case to answer, but there was a case to answer and could be dealt with by commitments. But let me just give you what the, competition, the French Competition Authority did in relation to, um, to search advertising. The French Competition Authority, as well as dealing with that case that I mentioned, did a report for the French government, which I, which I think contains some very sensible thoughts. They say, search engines and sponsored links of genuine use and have the potential to create significant added value. Okay. Then they say, Google today has a strong dominant position in the, in the French market for search-based advertising. And then they say, the competition authority does not recommend the enactment of a general regulatory framework. You know, we don't want kind of, some people have said we should create in the United States, side by side with the Federal Communications Commission, the Federal Search Commission, an organization which would just regulate search engines, but that would be pretty um, over the top. And then they say that competition law can limit Google's conduct, and obviously they're referring in part to their own intervention in relation to the NAVX case. And I think that's right. But the question is, when does it do so? The Google chairman recently quoted in the Washington Post Andy Grove, the, the famous um, Intel uh, chief executive. And he said, high tech runs three times faster than normal business. Government runs three times slower. So we have a nine times gap. I think it's a rather nice quote, actually. But the point I want to make is that it seems to me that that's a kind of a protection for high tech companies. It's not, it doesn't only mean that once the government's got in their hair, they're going to be in there for quite a long time. That sort of goes with the territory. It also means that the government is unlikely just willfully, in a volatile fashion, to make an intervention. Now, the question then is a question of timing. Google is 13. It's built up these very considerable benefits. It's at this moment that the competition authorities in Europe and in the United States are investigating it. I have no idea what the results of that investigation will be. We'll just have to wait and see. But I think it's hard to argue that it's, it's premature to do so in the circumstances and given the market shares that Google has in search. So I'm done, finally. Sorry about that. Okay, Martin, thank you very much. Um, I think it's, uh, it's been implicit, uh, sometimes explicit in your talk, that um, not only has Google been very innovative, very successful, and therefore very good for, for all of us over time, but also that it has been, and perhaps promises to be in the future, very good for lawyers. Um, so let's maybe 
see what this Department of Law lecture audience has uh, to say about uh, what you've um, presented to us. Can I get a sense of what questions we have? Okay. Um, maybe um, we can, first of all, uh, introduce yourselves when you're making uh, a comment and try to stick to questions rather uh, than statements, perhaps. Okay. So we have a couple of microphones. Maybe we can start here um, and then Hi, um, I'm Dr. Theo Bertram and I work for Google UK. Um, so I'm not sure whether to be pleased or scared that so many of you have come to this uh, event. Um, I'm not here to uh, argue or to lecture, so I'm here to listen. But um, there is one thing that I think it's important that I pick up, and that's what you didn't say. I think you very effectively made the case um, from our opponent's position, and in many cases you were even handed. But I think it's always important in an academic context to explain exactly how uh, an academic piece of research is funded when it is funded by a commercial entity. And you can correct me if I'm wrong, but as I understand it, the research on which this lecture was based was commissioned by an organization called ICOMP. ICOMP is largely funded by Microsoft. Its two directors listed in Companies House are one employee for Microsoft and one employee for Burson Marsteller. So I think they paid for your research through ICOMP, and I'm disappointed that you didn't make that clear at the start. They, they paid us to write a paper which ICOMP published, but what I presented today is, 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 is the outgrowth from that. But you're quite right to pull me up on that. I mean, it's, uh, I didn't think anybody would be particularly interested, but I'm, I'm very happy to acknowledge that um, an organization, the organization ICOM did pay Howard and me to do some work earlier. In the course of it, I never had any conversation with, with, uh, with Microsoft, so I, I, uh, nor indeed with anybody from Google, as it happens, apart from my friends. Um, thank you very much. Perhaps. Um, thank you very much for that talk. Um, sorry, I can't see Just you. over oh, here. Sorry, sorry, sorry. <laughs> Hi, uh, my name is Mifsal. I work as a um, in regulation economics, um, relatively new to the field. One of the, area, one of the ways in which monopolies are regulated, uh, if there is some dominance found, is to impose a cost-based pricing on, on what their competitors would be. How do you see Google being, you know, w is this a way in which Google can be uh, regulated? Oh, no, absolutely not, because the beauty of Google is that it's free. Um, and it, it recovers its costs through, through selling advertising, which it sells, it sells very large amounts in a very profitable fashion. So, so trying to, as I said at the outset, there is a tradition in regulatory economics in relation to pipes and wires and tracks, where you say, how much was invested in this? How many guys do we have to have running them? Let's make the access charge based upon that. But with these kind of over-the-top services, that just doesn't work at all. I mean, it would be like trying to, um, in a sense, trying to charge for TV programs uh, on the basis of the, the studio minutes that are required to make them rather than on anything else. So I, I, I don't, certainly don't want to go there. And I, as I agree with the French authority, I don't think you should go down the regulation route. The correct approach, which is being implemented, is to go down the competition law approach. Well, there's a, there's, a, there's a very interesting issue here because um, uh, Page and Brin have always been very keen on reducing the amount of advertising. 
And I think they rightly say, if we have all these pop-ups and all this other stuff on the screen, um, it's going to make the customer's experience much worse, and it's going to make it a pain to use it, as indeed many flights are a pain to use because of all this popping up. So there's a, there's a kind of um, dilemma here, which is, if in the interest of the consumers they reduce the amount of paid search that's available, they're also making it more scarce, and the effect of that may be to, to elevate the price. It's, a, you know, it's the same issue that you may get in, in choosing how many minutes of TV advertising to have or how many minutes of advertising to have in the newspaper. There's got to be a kind of um, commercial decision which doesn't lead to anti-competitive consequences, which, 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 which deals with that issue. And I think, um, personally, it's, uh, it's an awful lot better that, that you don't have the pop-ups and stuff like that. Okay, we have two questions at the front here, so... My name is Aisham. Um, I'm a researcher from the University of Essex. Uh, my PhD research deals with search engines and limitations of Article 102. Um, so my question would be about the Commission investigation. Let's say if the Commission was to find Google, was to decide that Google has abused its dominance in online search, um, do you think in its current form Article 102 is uh, well equipped in terms of remedies to deal with such problem? Because as far as I understood, you said you, you're not in favor of regulation route. Right. So uh, how do you think a competition remedy would look like in the case of Google? And how would the consumer welfare be served? Well, um, obviously, I was operating within the framework of the existing legislation, or rather the existing treaty. So we probably aren't likely to see a great deal of change in that for, for the foreseeable future. But the, 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 the options that are available may include um, accepting commitments. Um, as I've said, that's, that's quite a common thing. It was, it was done in France, and it seems to have solved the problem. I don't think the complainant is now complaining and that would deal with the matter. A more draconian thing would be to, um, to fine um, and then to, um, to uh, indicate what would have to be done in order to prevent the recurrence of a fine. I mean, that's, that's again, something that, was, that has been done in, in, in other circumstances, and it may involve a negotiation a la Microsoft with exactly who had to tell what to whom when and in what circumstances and by what time. But as I indicated, one of my slides I didn't really have time to go through. It's quite difficult to do that um, without basically allowing somebody else to crawl over um, Google's procedures. Um, and that wouldn't be a particularly comfortable um, outcome. So I've no idea what the Commission's going to do. But I mean, uh, Article 102 has actually provided a framework within which a, a range of different remedies can be introduced. And of course, since I have no idea what the nature of the problem is, it's rather difficult for me to expand at length upon the nature of the remedy. But, but my hunch is that there's a lot of stuff in there that could be used if they wanted to. Okay, we have another question at the front, uh, one to the left, and then we'll, we'll move upstairs. Um, uh, Faisal Qatan, I'm a student at LSE in the MPA program, so my question is more policy-related. Um, how do you um, evaluate, or how do you propose you regulate, if, if regulation is the answer, uh, Google executives like Wael Ghanim and the role that they played in in the revolution in the Middle East. How, what, where do we draw the line of how big or how influential Google employees have become and their role that they play in the political sphere 
not only the business-related sphere? I think, it, if you'll excuse me, I'll pass that question because, uh, I mean, that Google, Google does everywhere. You know, I had to just to focus upon two things. You know, we've literally been here all night if we want to discuss everything that Google did in the, in the business sphere. Um, and I haven't really thought about that question at all. So if you don't mind, I'll excuse myself. Hi there. I'm Dan Worth from technology website V3. Um, a slightly different angle on this and appreciate it might be hard to answer. But I just wonder, do you think this situation with Google is going to be unique? Or do you think similar firms could, could emerge as other innovations come through, you know, faster broadband, 4G networks? You know, is that the speed to market dominance can happen so quickly in, in the online digital space that do you think there's a risk or is it not a risk and it's something that regulators will have to accept that you might get these one-off companies that just control a huge segment of a market? Or do you think Google is a very unique situation and probably will be? Well, I mean, obviously, uh, there's, there's, uh, and there's a lot more foundation for the notion of creative destruction in the, in the digital world than there is in, in many other worlds. And, and one of the things that um, people are talking about a great deal now is the, is the threat which Facebook might impose on Google, just simply because Facebook is, is expanding its repertoire of activities, um, particularly in, in the advertising space. And, you know, it's back to the story I told about, um, about Bill Gates and the guys in the garage. I mean, who knows what's going on in other garages around the world? It could be, could be anything. I mean, Google could be toast. But to be honest, I think that's, given the, the brilliant nature of the product, I think it's pretty unlikely that's going to be so, yeah, at least until this particular competition inquiry has run its course. Okay, Martin, we have at least one question from upstairs. Um, are there others? Is this, um, hi, I'm, I'm up behind the glass wall in the uh, balcony to prevent me from jumping down there. Um, I'm an antitrust uh, competition practitioner in the United States, Britain, and in Australia, both government and non-government. Uh, I now teach ethics at Cambridge and Wharton, but I got my degree right here. Um, I want to ask you a question about this, the international context. I note that your closing discussion was about the French government bringing up the problems with Google's rankings. Uh, it was not the U.S. government, not the Antitrust Division, not the Federal Trade Commission, not the Federal Communications Commission. Um, do, do you see, is, is this politically within each country? Is this politically between the countries? Why was the French why wasn't it the Americans? Why wasn't it the British? Do they all have different agendas? And how are those agendas going to work together? Because this is not, there is no United Nations of competition law. Well, um, Google cases inevitably are handled by the European Commission in the first instance. So it's the European institutions which are, which are the relevant ones, um, provided uh, you know, the appropriate thresholds are, are dealt with. I, I, can't, I don't know enough about French law to explain why that particular one about the speed avoiding devices was actually dealt with by the Autorité de la Concurrence. Incidentally, the French government um, uses the Autorité de la Concurrence as a kind of think tank. It says to it, what do you think about this? Is there other problems in this area? And the, the document from which I quoted at the end is actually their report on, on search advertising. So it wasn't a case at all. It was just them, them sort of looking into the future and saying, do we think there are any problems? And I think that, as I indicated, I think what they said was, was very sensible. Um, so there may be, as in the Microsoft case, um, disagreements between 
the US competition authorities and the European competition authorities, or indeed in many other cases, including GE Honeywell and, and things of that kind. How those would be resolved, I have no idea. And there's, a, there's an additional angle in the United States, I understand, which was the, the investigations being made by the Federal Trade Commission, but it could equally be made by the Department of Justice. It's had to go sort of one way or the other. So you might get a different result depending upon that decision as well. But I should be surprised if, given the growing links between global competition authorities, they wouldn't make some kind of serious attempt as far as they were able under their particular terms of operation to produce a, a kind of coherent and compatible approach to what's going on. Okay, Martin, I think we have time for about two more questions. We have uh, one, one here and then another at the front. Thank you very much for the great presentation. Uh, I'm Subodh Wagli from India. I work uh, more into water and electricity sector regulation. So this is entirely new. But uh, I try, I'm trying to learn for the sectors and the country. Uh, what I could see is a one a really fantastic innovation, technological innovation, did create these problems. A technological innovation created all these issues. And we in our countries have innovators, uh, may not be technological innovators, but political innovators, bureaucratic innovators, and we have to work in a very diverse and a different uh, institutional setup. So problems which you are saying are somewhat similar to us. In this context, I am trying to learn what, ex what exactly it, all this is at the core. Is it, and there could be a range of answers, spectrum of answers. At one end, it could be this old, old story of a regulated trying to evade regulation. Or are we running out because of this innovation? Are we running out of the regulatory tools? Or at the more core level, are we running out of the concepts? Or rather our conceptual innovation, theoretical innovation is falling short of this technological innovation. So what is it at the core? Well, um, my, my view is basically you should, in the case of new services, give them a very long time to exploit their possibilities um, to ensure that the investors get an adequate return to the investments that they've made um, and only intervene um, once that stage has been reached. For example, in European telecoms regulation, there's, a, there's an explicit prohibition upon regulating emerging markets. I mean, that obviously leaves open how long a market takes emerging, but. Uh, but you know that, that's, that's the general sense of it. Now, it's hard to think of an area where um, there's more rapid innovation than there is in, um, in, in the kind of services, over-the-top services that we're talking about. And so the, the possibility that, as I've said, that there's some other guys in a garage who are, who are doing some stuff that's going to overturn what there is at present is, is much larger than might be the case, say, in automobile manufacture or something of that kind. So, so all of these things militate against any kind of heavy-handed regulatory intervention, especially of an ex-ante kind, like you know, mandating that costs should be, prices should be cost-oriented or something of that kind. Now, having said that, I think that the, the, that the general rules and jurisprudence governing um, competition law um, is quite adequate to deal with these problems, as to deal with problems in you know, biotechnology and things of that kind. But the, there is a greater risk of 
premature intervention than there is of waiting things go, 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 of letting things go on for too long. So I think you've got to wait, you know, 10 years, 20 years, whatever it is, before you, before you jump in, especially if you're going to jump in in a particular heavy-footed fashion. Okay, we've, uh, we've lost our last question, so um, if anybody has something burning that they'd like to press, um, speak now. Sorry. Uh, and after this, we'll, we'll wrap things up. Thanks. I'm uh, Luca Schiavoni, former student here and now a telecoms analyst at Ovum. Um, I think the hardest thing to, uh, to identify here uh, is a barrier to entry in this market. Because I believe, okay, they've been great and they have like developed an, an immense power and they have like the hugest market share that one could think of. But they've been good at devising a great algorithm for search. That's what they've been good at. And uh, the others have not been able to keep up, but nothing keeps the Yahoo's, the Microsoft from, from, uh, from doing the same. So I think it is very difficult to, uh, um, to think of a barrier to entry in this market, which probably will, uh, will uh, eliminate the case for exempt regulation. What, what do you think about this? I'm sorry, you can't think of a barrier to entry which would justify exempt regulation. Exactly. Well, we're on the same page. I mean, I don't think there's any possible justification for ex-ante regulation in this market at this, at this time. However, that doesn't mean that, that you and I could just advertise a search engine tomorrow and put one together and expect to survive in the market, you know, even if we had a big garage. So I, I, I think it is, you know, it's, 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 it's a game for big players. I mean, which of us is going to crawl over the trillions of web pages? Is it going to be you or me? You know, it's a, until you've got all that stuff done, it's very difficult to get the show on the road. Now, of course, big firms have a lot of money, and so they can do that. Um, and other firms may come up with, with, with techniques which, for some reason, make that unnecessary. So I think um, ex-ante regulation is a red herring here. It's just not, it's just not within the limits of the, uh, at this stage of the, uh, of the plausibly possible. Okay, uh, Martin, um, I think perhaps concern under, underpinning some of the questions we've heard has been that um, because we're dealing here with a high-tech market, um, because there's this nine times gap that you talked about, uh, perhaps uh, regulatory heads are in a spin such that um, European regulators at least are, are at risk of reverting to type and uh, promising to chop off the heads of those that win the competition. And I'm, I'm glad to say that um, while you've alluded to the fact that um, certainly there's smoke uh, in, the, uh, in our midst, um, perhaps there is, perhaps there is not fire. Um, we need to pay strong attention to this industry and this company. So um, on behalf of everyone here, I'd like to um, say a very great thanks to you um, for coming along this evening and giving us such an enlightening uh, conversation.